Autumn presents The Case of the Phantom Papyrus, written by Ariel Sabar. On the evening of February 1st, 2012, more than 1,000 people crowded into an auditorium at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The event was a showdown between two scholars over an explosive question in biblical studies. Is the original text of the New Testament lost, or do today's Bibles contain the actual words, the autographs of Jesus' earliest chroniclers? On one side was Bart Ehrman, a UNC professor and atheist, whose best selling books argue that the oldest copies of Christian scripture are so inconsistent and incomplete, and so few in number, that the original words are beyond recovery. On the other was Daniel Wallace, a conservative scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary who believes that careful textual analysis can surface the New Testament's divinely inspired first draft. They had debated twice before, but this time Wallace had a secret weapon. At the end of his opening statement, he announced that verses of the Gospel of Mark had just been discovered on a piece of papyrus from the first century. As news went in the field of biblical studies, this was a bombshell. The papyrus would be the only known Christian manuscript from the century in which Jesus is said to have lived. Its verses, moreover, closely matched those in modern Bibles, evidence of the New Testament's reliability and a rebuke to liberal scholars who saw the good book not as God given, but as the messy work of generations of human hands, prone to invention and revision, mischief and mistake. Wallace declined to name the expert who dated the papyrus to the first century, I've been sworn to secrecy, but assured the audience that his reputation is unimpeachable. Many consider him to be the best papyrologist on the planet. The fragment, Wallace added, would appear in an academic book the next year. Though he didn't mention it on stage, Wallace had recently joined something called the Green Scholars Initiative. The program was funded by the Green family, the evangelical billionaires who own the Hobby Lobby craft store chain. It gave hand-picked scholars access to the thousands of artifacts the family had collected for their Museum of the Bible, a soaring $500 million showplace that would open a few years later near the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Wallace's ties to the Greens made it easy for observers to connect the dots. The Mark Papyrus had to be one of the manuscripts the Greens had bought for their museum, and the papyrologist who worked out its first-century date had to be the world-renowned classicist Dirk Obink. The Greens were known to have hired him as a consultant during their antiquities buying spree. His enlistment had been a coup. A tall Nebraskan with a mop of sandy hair, Obink was in his mid-40s in 2001 when the MacArthur Foundation awarded him a half-million-dollar genius grant. His technique for reassembling papyrus scrolls carbonized by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in A.D. 79 was a feat of three-dimensional puzzle solving. Sought by universities and cultural institutions the world over, Obink taught at Columbia before leaving, in 1995, for Oxford, home to the world's largest collection of manuscripts from the ancient world half a million papyri that a pair of young Oxford scholars had excavated in Egypt a century earlier. Obink's post as a general editor of the collection, the media sometimes called him its director, though officially no such title exists, 
made him one of his field's most powerful figures. Wallace had not overstated his qualifications. But years passed, with no news of this first-century mark, as the phantom manuscript came to be called. There was no book in 2013, no exhibit when the museum opened in 2017. Wallace's blog filled with hundreds of comments. It has been five years, readers complained. Hurry up. One man simply quoted from the book of Proverbs, expectation postponed makes the heart sick. Yet in 2018, when Obink finally published the fragment, it made certain hearts even sicker. The Greens would see their dreams of a first-century gospel dashed. The University of Oxford would be thrust into the news in a labyrinthine case of alleged antiquities theft, cover-up, and fraud. And one of the most illustrious figures in classics, though protesting his innocence, would find himself at the center of a transatlantic investigation. Dirk Obink had rummaged for diamonds in the rough since his boyhood in Lincoln, Nebraska. In 2002, the year after he was awarded the MacArthur Prize, his mother Dorothy told Smithsonian Magazine that as a child, her son had haunted thrift shops and the town dump, coming home with a bunch of junk. His fascination with other people's trash carried into his years in New York, where he took his daughter dumpster diving. That papyrology called to him was perhaps little wonder. Papyrus was the ancient world's paper, a disposable medium made of reeds harvested along the Nile. Its 1,000-year heyday as a writing surface coincided with the Greco-Roman era, the fall of the pharaohs, the birth of Christianity, and the advent of Islam. Obink taught students how to mine the brownish, jigsaw-puzzle-like fragments for lost works of Greek literature and philosophy. No collection came close to rivaling the one Obink helped oversee at Oxford's Sackler Library. The Oxyrhynchus papyri, named after the lost Egyptian city from whose ancient rubbish heaps they were excavated, contained forgotten works of Sophocles, Menander, and Sappho, love spells and horoscopes, early gospels and Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. Deciphering the texts is so laborious and oversight so strict that just 1% of the fragments have been published since their discovery. As a decoder of crumbling, half-vanished manuscripts, Obink was an absolute master, his friend David Sider, an NYU classicist, told me. When he gave students his attention, they found him mesmerizing. But Obink was often as inscrutable as the texts he placed under his microscope. Despite boyish looks, an open face beneath a helmet of center-parted bangs, Obink had a wooden air and monotone voice that struck some people as cold, or, as one former student put it, whatever the opposite of charisma is. He was never quite there another pupil said. Sider learned not to ask personal questions. He'd start to be vague, Sider told me, or his eyes would start to look elsewhere. Friends tell a story from Obink's graduate school days at Stanford, when his then-wife returned to their small apartment to find a grand piano monopolizing the living room. She said to him, oh, I didn't know you played, a former colleague recalled. He said, well, you never asked. There were surprises at work, too. 
In 2003, after eight years at Oxford, Obink was hired by the University of Michigan for a tenured, full-time chair in paparology at a salary of $105,000. Though he was eminently qualified, the offer was largely an effort to keep his new wife, an esteemed faculty member, at the school. The couple had a young child, and administrators were sympathetic to the strain a long-distance marriage would put on the family. A few years later, a Michigan classicist named Ruth Scodell was perusing Oxford's course offerings when she came across a Greek poetry class. Its teacher was a man she thought worked down the hall from her in Ann Arbor. I went, what? Scodell recalled. The revelation that he'd never stopped teaching at Oxford, despite the lengths to which Michigan had gone to help his family, eroded his decades-long friendship with Richard Janko, who'd chaired Michigan's classics department when Obink was hired. It shook my confidence in his character, Janko told me. Obink's lawyer says that both Oxford and Michigan were aware and had given unequivocal contractual permission for Obink to hold a dual appointment. On April 10, 2012, three weeks before he parted ways with the University of Michigan, Obink visited the county clerk in Ann Arbor. He filed paperwork for a new business, listing its principal address as room 2151 at 435 South State Street, his soon-to-be former office in the Michigan Classics Department. The company's name, he wrote, was Oxford Ancient. Founded by King Henry VIII in 1546, Christ Church is the most picturesque of the colleges that make up the University of Oxford. The poet W.H. Auden, the philosopher John Locke, and several British prime ministers were educated on its castle-like grounds, parts of which stand in for Hogwarts in the Harry Potter films. One night in November 2011, Two American evangelicals walked up a flight of stairs in a Gothic bell tower on Christ Church's central quad. Scott Carroll and Jerry Pattengale had been friends since their days together in a different Oxford, the city in southwest Ohio, where they each earned a doctorate in ancient history at Miami University. Both had taught at Christian colleges and advised well-to-do collectors before Steve Green, the president of Hobby Lobby, hired them to lay the intellectual foundations for a national Bible museum. Carroll was put in charge of acquisitions, a post that played to his self-image as an impresario called by God to summon texts from the farthest reaches of the globe. His cell phone's ringtone was the theme from Indiana Jones. A promotional photo, captioned, Great Scott, depicts him in shorts and a fedora, swinging through the jungle on a rope. The more sober-tempered Pattengale was named Executive Director of Education. His job was to establish the Green Scholars Initiative, recruiting world-class academics to mentor the students the Greens would invite to research their fast-growing collection. At the top of the stairs that evening, Dirk Obink opened a black door and let the two men into his office a suite of rooms with a kitchen, a bathroom, and a pair of mummy masks that gazed at visitors from across a pool table. By then, he'd been on the Hobby Lobby payroll for about a year. For Carol, he vetted manuscripts that dealers across the world were clamoring to sell to the Greens. For Pattengale, he would teach paparology to Green scholars at summer seminars. They spent an hour discussing Obink's latest work, 
Then, as Carol and Pattengale stood to leave, Obink called to them, as if stopped by a stray thought. Well, wait a minute, he said. I have something here you might be interested in. He padded behind the pool table and opened a manila folder. Inside, in plastic sleeves, were ancient pieces from each of the four New Testament Gospels. Obink tweezed out a fragment of Mark, a small hatchet-shaped papyrus with verses from the Gospel's first chapter for his visitors to see. The shape and strokes of certain letters, he explained, were hallmarks of first-century handwriting. Obink described the fragment as part of a family collection and, according to Carol, offered it for consideration for Hobby Lobby to buy. Pattengale felt momentarily paralyzed, while Carol paced the room, delirious. Everything they'd worked on up to that point seemed to suddenly pale. When Pattengale flew home to Indiana the next day, I told my wife Cindy, if this proves to be first century, I may be involved in researching one of the most important pieces of the Bible ever discovered. Steve Green had loosed tidal forces when he entered the antiquities market in 2009. He was a motivated first-time buyer with millions to burn in the midst of a global recession. Strangers bearing ancient scrolls, oil lamps, and Incia nabula approached museum officials unbidden at restaurants, college lecture halls, even supermarkets. One would-be seller claimed to have a 5,000-year-old Bible that had been perfectly preserved in ice atop Mount Ararat. Another brought a box of manuscripts to the parking lot of a cattleman's steakhouse near Hobby Lobby headquarters in Oklahoma City. When Carol rebuffed him, the dealer set the box on the trunk of Carol's car, then dashed off, yelling, You'll love these! Call me! In five years, Green acquired more than 40,000 artifacts, from cuneiform tablets and Dead Sea Scrolls to Jewish Torahs and early American Bibles. But he wasn't indiscriminate. We're buyers of items to tell the story, Green once said, and the story of Christianity he wanted to tell was of the Bible as a God-given record of absolute authority and reliability. The Greens didn't want another creation museum or Noah's Ark theme park. They envisioned a Christian Smithsonian, as the scholars Candida Moss and Joel Baden described it in their book Bible Nation, an elegantly designed, intellectually serious institution that chronicled the Bible as a profoundly influential historical manuscript. But secular scholars had doubts. Even before it opened its doors, some critics regarded the Museum of the Bible as little more than a dressed-up version of the many evangelical causes the Greens poured their wealth into, a ministry, in all but name, that cast the New Testament as the unfiltered word of God and America as a Protestant nation. Its detractors saw the Greens as too invested in a particular set of religious beliefs to present the Bible's many texts and traditions dispassionately. Obink was part of the museum's answer to such criticisms. He was so towering a scholar that the Greens could counter accusations of religious bias simply by citing his involvement. He was, in Carroll's words, a person that has no agenda whatsoever. When it came to papyrus, the predominant writing surface at the dawn of Christianity, the Greens could point to Obink as an impartial arbiter, someone who could tell the honest brokers from the hucksters, the great finds from the fakes. 
According to friends, Obink displayed no obvious religious convictions, nor did he have much patience for people whose faith skewed their judgment. People try to date Oxyrhynchus papyri earlier than they really are because they want Christianity to start earlier than it does, Obink told a New Zealand magazine in 2005. But something happened in the presence of his new patrons. He fawned over the Greens' aspirations, writing to Scott Carroll in January 2010 that he looked forward to the flourishing of your commendable undertaking. He closed emails, as his new benefactors did, with the sign-off, Blessings. And according to a devout former museum official, he bowed his head and prayed before meals in so theatrical a way that, even among evangelicals, he was the most visibly pious person at the table. In early 2012, a few months after their meeting at Christ Church, Obink invited Pattengale to London to show him a batch of papyri that had come up for sale. The men were steps from Sotheby's, where Pattengale thought they were going, when Obink turned down a narrow alley to the small, quartered apartment of a 30-something Turk who answered the door in a Yankees jersey. Pattengale would later learn that the man, a dealer named Yakub Exioglu, was suspected by scholars of illicitly trafficking papyri. Exioglu had begun selling antiquities on eBay under a series of usernames in 2008, around the time social media accounts placed him in Egypt. When Roberta Mazza, an Italian papyrologist, grilled Exioglu about the source of his fragments in 2017, Exioglu threatened her. Always look at the back when you walk, he wrote in a WhatsApp chat she later sent me. He alluded to an attack in Europe in which acid had been thrown in victims' faces. Exioglu says that his antiquities business is fully legal and that if threats to matzah came from his phone, they were perhaps sent by some students he knew as humor. Exioglu talked on his cell phone behind a beaded curtain as Obink showed Pattengale a 6th-century Coptic fragment from 1 Corinthians for which Exioglu wanted $1 million. Almost as odd as the meeting's setting, Pattengale told me, was Obink's eagerness for the Greens to buy. He contacted me not long afterwards to see if we were moving forward and wondered why we weren't and couldn't believe we weren't. Professor Jeff Fish was in his office at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, in the fall of 2010 when he got a voicemail. The caller was someone named Scott Carroll, who asked whether Fish and his students might like to study papyri from the Green Collection. Fish had never heard of Carroll or the Greens, much less any new cache of unstudied manuscripts. He might have written the whole thing off as some kind of prank had Carroll not dropped the name Dirk Obink. Fish revered the Oxford professor, as much for his scholarship as for the role he'd played in Fish's own career. Fish had been foundering on his doctoral thesis at the University of Texas in the 1990s when Obink, with whom he'd taken a summer papyrology class at Oxford, steered him toward a new topic and opened doors to closely guarded Italian papyri. That someone of Obink's renown might partner with a scholar Fish had never even heard of was almost unbelievable. Fish wrote to his old mentor to see whether any of it was true. It would be great if we could work together with Scott Carroll on this, Obink replied. I recommend him to you highly. 
Though Fish didn't know it, Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion had already signed on as the home of the Green Scholars Initiative. Baylor administrators were smitten enough with Carroll and the excitement the Green Collection was generating among students that they offered him a $100,000 annual stipend and the title Research Professor, though he taught no courses and published no research. Carroll struck many Baylor professors as less scholar than ringmaster, or circus act, as one put it. He showed up with suitcases full of antiquities, passing them around to astonished professors and students. But nothing made more of an impression than the macabre show he would put on in the classics department lounge. In the age of the pharaohs, mummified corpses were fitted with masks made of cartonnage, a kind of papier-mâché fashioned from plaster, linen, and discarded papyrus. 19th-century archaeologists discovered that papyri could be extracted from the masks by dissolving the plaster, then carefully peeling apart the wadded texts. The technique, known as dismounting, was clever. But because the ancients made cartonnage from waste papyrus, receipts, notes, and other ephemera, it produced few major literary discoveries. The likelihood of Christian finds was almost nil. Egyptians had ceased using papyri and mummy masks before Jesus' day. By the 1960s, the practice of dissolving another culture's death masks on the off chance of finding a manuscript had been all but abandoned, as much for ethical reasons as for the lackluster results. Scott Carroll, however, presented himself as a modern-day maestro. Where others found dreck, he found gold. Everything has to be done just right, including water temperature, drying technique, and the particulars of enzyme action, he once told a seminary audience. I dare someone to try to do it on their own, because they'll waste hundreds of thousands of dollars if they don't know the process. On January 16, 2012, Carroll gave Baylor a glimpse of how it was done. He filled a sink in the classics lounge with warm water and palm olive dish soap, plunged a mummy mask into the suds, and began swishing it around. Then he withdrew a wet fragment and presented it to awestruck students. He said, whoa, now take a look at this and see if you can read it, recalled David Lyle Jeffrey, a medieval Bible scholar and former Baylor provost who helped manage the school's relationship with the Greens. The fragment turned out to be a piece of Paul's letter to the Romans. The kids were bamboozled. Wow, wow. It was the kind of eureka moment any professor might hope to inspire in undergraduates. Jeffrey might have been just as floored were it not for something he'd noticed when students were first gathering in the room. Before his demonstration, Carol had discreetly set a piece of papyrus beside the sink, and Jeffrey had glanced at it. When Carol withdrew the wet Romans fragment from the mummy mask, Jeffrey recognized it as the piece he'd seen beside the sink. Carol, he realized, had only pretended to pull it from the mask. Two days later, Hobby Lobby president Steve Green went on CNN to talk about the Romans fragment, which he presented as the oldest known copy of the Pauline epistle. This has just been discovered in the past 48 hours, Green said. In truth, an internal review of sales records would later conclude Hobby Lobby had purchased it 18 months earlier, from Dirk Obink. Though it wasn't publicly known, Obink served as more than just an academic consultant to the Greens. 
Josephine Drew, a former papyrus curator for the Museum of the Bible, told me he was one of their biggest suppliers of papyri. From January 2010 to February 2013, Obink sold the family more than 150 papyrus fragments for a total of between $4 million and $8 million, according to a source who has seen the figures and described them to me as a range. Jeffrey Cloa, the Museum of the Bible's chief curator, didn't dispute those numbers, but estimated a total closer to the low end of that range. Scott Carroll may have claimed that Obink had no agenda whatsoever, but in fact, Obink had several. He was acting as a scholar, an advisor, and a seller. The first owed allegiance to the truth, the second to his clients, the third to his own bottom line. Simon Burris, who taught Greek poetry at Baylor, had shown up at the mummy mask dissolving that January, less out of scholarly interest than to take part in the life of the department. Lecturers like him did well to show their faces to the tenured faculty, who decided whether to renew their annual teaching contracts. Burris found a spot at a table where Carol was drying papyri he'd pulled out of the sink, but soon felt his head spinning. Before him was a small Greek fragment with four-line stanzas in an Aeolic dialect, a hallmark of Sappho, the 6th century BC poet from the Isle of Lesbos famed for her passionate depictions of love. Sappho is as revered by classicists as her writings are scarce. Just one complete poem and fragments of some others survive, many of them from Oxyrhynchus. Burris quickly spotted other pieces, still wet, bearing the same sapphic markers. He ran their surviving words through a search engine. They not only overlapped with known Sappho poems, but filled in previously unknown lines. I was gobsmacked, Burris told me. I think I said an expletive or two, holy moly, except without the moly. He remembers Carol glancing at him with a grin. Oh, did you find something? The lounge became standing room only. Burris gave an impromptu speech about the poet's work. One professor was in tears. Burris was a lecturer with relatively few publications, but here he was, making a find worthy of international headlines. For all kinds of reasons, he wanted to believe it. But something felt off. The Sappho pieces had been laid out in such a way that even a non-Sappho expert like him could spot several in just minutes. He would eventually discover some 20 of them. He wondered, did Carol somehow know what was in the mask before he disemboweled it? I am presently in contact with our PR firm in hopes of a press release on this, Carol wrote to students later that day. But no press release came, and miraculously, word of Burris's find never leaked. Two months later, according to Jeffrey, Carol told Baylor that if it wanted continued access to the Green Collection, he'd need a bigger paycheck. Carol says he never asked for a raise and that Jeffrey was simply unhappy with how much Baylor was already paying him. The jarring request, together with his concerns about the mummy masks, prompted Jeffrey to take a closer look at Carol's resume. He discovered that half a dozen books Carol claimed to have written didn't actually exist. Carol was fired by Baylor and the Greens in May 2012, but by then they no longer needed him. Both had begun strengthening ties to an Oxford professor who couldn't have seemed more different.
In most respects, Obink was indeed Carol's opposite, a professor at one of the world's most prestigious universities, aloof, reserved. Yet in the decade after Obink's genius grant, a view had taken hold among some colleagues that he'd failed to live up to the high expectations. Some thought he'd spread himself too thin, chasing every short-lived opportunity rather than pursuing the sort of single-minded research that had produced Philodemus on Piety, Part 1, the 1996 opus that had vaulted him to the highest echelon of classical scholarship. The MacArthur Foundation had noted that Part 2 was due out in 2003. Seventeen years later, it remains unpublished. He struggled even to finish articles. In a crowded elevator at a classics conference, when one academic editor jokingly asked how many others were waiting for a piece of writing from Obink, half the hands went up. As the years passed, Obink seemed more interested in monetizing his work a common enough practice in the sciences, but rare in the humanities. In 2011, he founded a startup with Chinese entrepreneurs and Oxford seed money to design desktop manuscript scanners, an enterprise that UK business records show has hemorrhaged money. Pattengale told me that boxes of the scanners were piled, unsold, along the walls of Obink's office. In 2012 came Oxford Ancient, and in 2014, an antiquities business called Castle Folio, which he co-founded with a Michigan man named Mahmoud Elder. By 2013, the Museum of the Bible was paying Obink $6,000 a month, twice the top rate for other academics in its scholars' initiative. At events sponsored by the Greens, Obink, at times in a white lab coat, dunked wedges of mummy cartonnage in soapy water. He says, this is what scholars do, recalled Jeremiah Coogan, a student who attended one. We got this spiel about, this is where you discover New Testament papyri, a line that Coogan, like other scholars, soon recognized as dubious. Obink had once kept hundreds of Oxford's uncatalogued mummy masks in his rooms as a favor to the university, which was short on storage. But a longtime colleague told me he'd never seen Obink perform a dismounting. This sort of thing never took place in his university teaching. Not that Obink hadn't thought about it. In a German newspaper interview in 2005, he'd fantasized about the potential bounty of poems and plays But, as the newspaper reported, experts no longer use such methods. Five years later, Obink appeared to have abandoned any qualms. Suitable for dismantling, dissolving, he wrote in the sales paperwork for a mask Hobby Lobby bought from him in 2010. It was one of some 20 masks Obink sold the greens. A source who has seen the figures told me that on top of the $4 million to $8 million he charged for papyri, the family paid him $1 million to $2 million for a host of other antiquities. Among them was a medieval Latin manuscript titled On Stolen Things. In early 2014, headlines appeared across the world. Obink had discovered a pair of breathtaking new Sappho poems on a piece of papyrus salvaged from a mummy mask. For a couple of months, it was just me and a girl named Sappho. Nothing between me and the text, Obink said on BBC Radio. It was like being shipwrecked on a desert island with Marilyn Monroe. But Obink declined to name the papyrus's owner or to release its provenance paperwork. 
In a New York Times op-ed, Douglas Boyne, a historian at St. Louis University, called Obink's secrecy disturbingly tone-deaf at a time of catastrophic looting in the Middle East. The next year, Christie's produced a 26-page brochure offering the two Sappho poems for sale by private treaty, a transaction in which an auction house quietly approaches prospective buyers rather than hosting a public sale. Obing eventually told a convoluted tale about an anonymous London businessman who had bought cartonnage at a Christie's auction in 2011, dissolved it, and brought extracted papyri to Obink, who discovered the two Sappho poems. The businessman then put some 20 small scraps that had also been pulled from the cartonnage, being not easily identified and deemed insignificant, on the market. By chance, an intermediary dealer sold them to the Green Collection, where Obink picked them out as yet more Sappho. Brent Nongbri, a Christian manuscript scholar, has identified no fewer than six different accounts of provenance put forward by Obink, Carroll, or Bettany Hughes, a British broadcaster who has featured Obink on several of her TV and radio shows. None of those accounts included the one detail witnessed by a large group of people. Simon Burris's identification of the smaller Sappho pieces in Baylor's crowded Classics Department lounge in 2012. Sources close to the Greens told me that some of the Sappho pieces Burris found that day are visible in photos dated December 7, 2011, more than a month before Carol pulled them from the soapy water at Baylor. The images appear in an invoice for papyri that the Greens bought on January 7, 2012. The seller was Jakub Esioglu. In a WhatsApp chat this February, Esioglu told me that he was, indeed, the source for all the Sappho fragments, the 20 small pieces discovered at Baylor, and the large sheet with the two new poems. The claim that they had come from cartonnage purchased at a Christie's auction in 2011 was a fake story he said. When I asked why some of the pieces looked, in photos, like they had been embedded in cartonnage, he suggested that they had been staged. This is a very simple method. You can do it by wetting. Exioglu said the Sappho's had belonged to his family collection for at least a century. When I asked for corroboration, he said he didn't want to bother his relatives, and that in any case, no one but him knew anything about it. In our many exchanges, Exioglu trafficked in conspiracy theories and made statements that he later acknowledged were lies. But even if only the documented claims are true, that he sold the Greens the smaller Sappho scraps, they expose Carroll's Baylor demonstration as a con and discredit key parts of Obink's provenance story. When I told Carroll what I'd discovered, he acknowledged planting the Sappho and Roman's fragments in the mask at Baylor that day, His aim, he said, was to teach students how to identify papyri, not how to dismount a mask. Unsure of what he'd recover from the mask, he decided to mix in some exciting pieces from the green collection. At the time, I didn't feel that it was duplicitous. Representatives for the greens knew long ago that Exioglu was the source of the new Sapphos, but they stayed mum even as questions mounted. It's interesting that hardly any Sappho has surfaced for decades, and now there's plenty, one senior Museum of the Bible official wrote to two others on July 11, 2012. Of Exioglu, the official added, 
You're likely both aware that he's been the main conduit for much of the best stuff surfacing. Therein is the potential issue, one of them replied. Where is it coming from? Though housed at Oxford, the Oxyrhynchus papyri are owned by the Egypt Exploration Society, the London charity that financed their excavation. Public criticism of Obink's Sappho dealings deeply unsettled the EES. The collection's general editors weren't supposed to have anything to do with buyers or sellers of antiquities. At a meeting in London in July 2014, EES officials gave Obink an ultimatum, cut ties with the Greens or lose his editorship. That night, after Obink returned to Oxford, he went to the hotel where Jerry Pattengale and Steve Green were staying during a summer session of the Green Scholars Initiative. They took seats on an outdoor patio, and Obink told them of the EES's mandate. He was sweating profusely, Pattengale recalled. If the EES shut Obink out of the Oxyrhynchus papyri, he would lose the raison d'etre for his position at Oxford, and maybe his position along with it. Pattengale pitched the Greens on endowing a chair for Obink at Oxford to keep him at the university even if he lost access to the collection. This was simply to treat someone well who had been so helpful, Pattengale told me, but he was overruled. Kerry Summers, then president of the Museum of the Bible, saw a faculty job for Obink at Baylor as a better contingency plan. It was disingenuous, Pattengale told me, it would be the museum funding Baylor to fund him, masking his ties to the Greens and thereby maintaining his access to the Oxyrhynchus collection, even if he spent part of the year in Texas. Summers did not respond to multiple interview requests. Obing told the EES that he'd broken with the Greens. In truth, sources told me, the Museum of the Bible continued to finance his projects and pay him the $6,000 a month stipend. If the EES found out, Obink might need a new job fast. In September 2014, two months after the EES ultimatum, Obink bought a faux medieval castle a short drive from the Baylor campus. Fish, the Baylor classicist, was dumbfounded. The 124-year-old Cottonland Castle, built of sandstone, Carrara marble, and Honduran mahogany, was a wholly out-of-place structure, bordered by a used car lot and blotted by water damage and graffiti. When I visited Waco last fall, people told me that teenagers had a Halloween tradition of breaking into the vacant building and sneaking through the dark to its top floor. Did Obink plan to live in the castle? Was he hoping that a showy display of civic goodwill, the restoration of a notorious Waco eyesore would improve his prospects for a full-time job offer from Baylor? No one at the university seemed to know. I think it reminded him of Oxford. Tom Lupfer, the renovator Obing hired, told me. Lupfer showed me the plans. Underground garage, elevator, spiral staircase leading from sun deck to swimming pool, pool house with changing rooms. Lupfer warned Obink that the work would take a few years and cost as much as $1.4 million. Obink didn't flinch, but Lupfer wondered how anyone on an academic salary could afford such extravagance. In November 2015, a video appeared on YouTube, filmed on a smartphone from the pews of a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. From the pulpit, where he was addressing a conference of conservative Christians, 
Scott Carroll spoke of seeing a Gospel of Mark from the first century at Oxford University at Christ Church College in the possession of an outstanding, well-known, eminent classicist, Dirk Obing, who thought the papyrus might date to as early as A.D. 70, the same year most scholars think the Gospel was first composed. This was no longer Daniel Wallace telling a vague second-hand story on a debate stage. This was an eyewitness with names, dates, and places. The video so unnerved the Egypt Exploration Society that it began a review of all its unpublished New Testament papyri. It learned that one of Obink's researchers had found a small fragment of Mark in its collection in 2011 a piece photographed by a curator as early as the 1980s, but never before identified. Was this the discovery that Wallace had announced at the University of North Carolina and that Carroll had confirmed in the church video nearly four years later? Confronted by the EES, Obink admitted to having a fragment of Mark from Oxyrhynchus in his office and showing it to Carroll, but he insisted that he'd never said it was for sale. The EES instructed him, to prepare it for publication as soon as practicable in order to avoid further speculation about its date and content. Obink could no doubt foresee the consequences of publication. The moment images of the fragment became public, Pattengale, Carroll, and Wallace would recognize the papyrus as the one he'd allegedly offered to the Greens half a decade earlier. They would notice he'd published it in the official book series for EES Papyri, exposing it as never his to sell. Perhaps most distressing, they'd see Obink's new dating. In a book of serious scholarship, he'd assign their supposed first-century mark to the late second or early third century, making it far less remarkable. In 2016, the EES declined to renew Obink's position as general editor and took away his key to the papyrus room. He could no longer work there unless supervised by Daniela Colomo, the collection's curator. The next year, as the deadline for Obing's Editio Princeps approached, it looked to his editors as though he might never finish. Unwilling to brook further delay, the EES enlisted Colomo and the collection's researcher, Ben Henry, to complete it for him. Meanwhile, new curators at the Museum of the Bible began making disquieting discoveries about the Greens' papyri. David Trobish, who directed the museum's collection, called Ixioglu while on business in Istanbul. The dealer picked Trobish up at his hotel at 2 a.m., drove him to a high-rise apartment, and plied him with cigars and whiskey. Trobish asked where Ixioglu had gotten the papyri he sold the Greens. He had no records. There was nothing. He couldn't help me, Trobish told me. But Ixioglu hoped Trobish could help him. The dealer set cardboard boxes containing at least 1,000 fragments of papyri on his kitchen table in hopes of another sale. Where is it from? Trobish asked. Ixioglu mumbled something about war and Syria then mimicked locals stubbing their toes into the ground, stumbling on antiquities. This is over, Trobish replied. Ixioglu denies meeting Trobish and says that a student had gone in his stead. Later that day, when Trobish met with another of the Greens' Turkish papyrus suppliers, he wanted to know whether I came with the police. In December 2017, Trobish and his soon-to-be successor, Jeffrey Kloa, traveled to Oxford to ask Obink about the sources of his papyri. 
He said he didn't have the provenance paperwork in his office. He would check later. He would forward them to me later, Cloa told me. He never produced anything. The Greens broke all ties with Obink the next month. When the Mark Fragment was finally published in April 2018 in the book The Oxyrhynchus Papyri, Volume 83, it ignited exactly the scholarly firestorm anyone might have predicted. On his influential blog, Brent Nongbri wrote wryly, Seems like there is a bit more to the story. In June 2019, Michael Holmes, who replaced Pattengale as the director of the Scholars Initiative, flew to London to meet with leaders of the Egypt Exploration Society, who remained skeptical that Obink, whatever his other shortcomings, might have sold Oxyrhynchus papyri. Over lunch at a private club, Holmes pulled out a purchase agreement between Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc. and Dirk Obink, co-signed by the Oxford professor on February 4, 2013, it showed that Obink had sold the company not just the Mark Papyrus, but also fragments of the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. In the contract, Obink describes the manuscripts as his personal property, vows to ship, hand-carry them from Oxford Ancient, and dates all four to a historically unprecedented circa 100 A.D., making each a one-of-a-kind worth millions. When EES officials saw the contract, Holmes told me, any uncertainties they had evaporated very quickly. They banned Obink from the collection. The Museum of the Bible began sending to the EES images of every papyrus the Greens had purchased, from any seller. Comparing them against the Society's own photographic inventory, EES officials spotted 13 of its biblical fragments. From written descriptions provided by Hobby Lobby, it identified four more, the Gospels that Obink's sales contract dated to the first century, though none, the EES said, were in fact that old. Fifteen of the EES's fragments had been sold to the Greens by Obink for more than $1.5 million, a source who has seen the figures told me. Among them was the Roman scrap Carol pretended to pull from a mummy mask at Baylor in 2012. The Greens bought the two other EES fragments from the family business of Alan Baidun, a Jerusalem dealer who appeared to have acted as a middleman for Obink. Baidun did not answer multiple emails and phone calls, but has previously denied wrongdoing through a spokesperson. The EES soon discovered another half-dozen of its papyri in the collection of a wealthy California collector named Andrew Steimer, who had previously sold the Greens four Dead Sea Scrolls that the Museum of the Bible later deemed forgeries. Steimer disputes the museum's forgery findings. Steimer, who leads an evangelical ministry called Hope Partners International, said he purchased two of the fragments in 2015 from a Mr. M. Elder of Dearborn, Michigan, a seeming match for Obink's business partner. When scholars saw images of those fragments from Romans and 1 Corinthians, they realized the Museum of the Bible owned adjoining pieces from the same leaves. Someone appears to have cut up scriptures that, according to EES photos, had been intact at Oxford. Mr. M. Elder had sold one pair of cuts to Steimer, and Obink had sold the other to the Greens. Mahmoud Elder declined to comment, invoking what he called a client non-disclosure agreement. 
An inventory of Steimer's collection, provided to me by a source, states that two other papyri, from Exodus and Psalms, had been deaccessioned or sold off, by seminaries in Berkeley, California, and Dayton, Ohio. It was a lie. Both fragments belonged to the EES. Steimer told me he was blindsided, has returned the EES fragments, and is trying to recover the substantial sums he paid. Obink, he said, had listed the Berkeley and Dayton seminaries as their source in a scholarly report that came with the purchase. For most of the stolen papyri, the EES's corresponding inventory cards and photographs were also missing. The thief, it seemed, had sought to cover his tracks by erasing evidence of the papyri's existence. In a collection of some half a million pieces, perhaps they'd never be missed. But the thief miscalculated. Copies of the inventory existed in various locations, including University College London. Drawing on such backups, the EES said it has so far identified 120 papyri that appear to be missing almost all from a limited number of folders. In what might well be British understatement, it warned that a few more cases may emerge. On November 12th, the EES reported its findings to the Thames Valley Police. On March 2nd, the police detained Obink for questioning on suspicion of theft and fraud. As of press time, no charges had been filed. The allegations made against me that I have stolen, removed, or sold items owned by the Egyptian Exploration Society collection at the University of Oxford are entirely false, Obink said in a statement this past October, four days after the EES and the Museum of the Bible announced the results of a preliminary joint investigation. I would never betray the trust of my colleagues and the values which I have sought to protect and uphold throughout my academic career in the way that has been alleged. He hinted darkly that he may have been framed, but declined to elaborate. A few days later, in the second week of Oxford's fall term, Obink was relieved of his teaching duties. I traveled to Oxford later that week and rang the doorbell at a comfortable-looking but hardly lavish house with a small swimming pool at the end of a leafy lane. When Obink opened the door, he was wearing black pants, slip-on leather shoes, and a tan shirt with stylized military epaulettes. I said I was there because I wanted to hear his side of the story. I'd like to tell it, he said, with an almost preternatural calm but I'm under a duty not to speak about the matter while it's under investigation, by Oxford. In April, I sent Obink and his attorney a detailed list of questions. His attorney responded with three minor clarifications, but said that Obink was otherwise unable to comment because he owed confidentiality to Oxford during its ongoing internal process. If Obink's relationship with the Greens had a fatal flaw, it was that he needed it to stay secret, whereas the Greens wanted to shout it to the world. By far and away, Dirk is the most strategic friend and supporter of all that we are doing, Carol wrote to Steve Green in a June 2011 email. In negotiations with Hobby Lobby for the sale of the four first-century fragments, Obink had demanded a set of highly irregular contract clauses. There was to be no public announcement of the acquisition, Obink could never be named as the seller, and the fragments would stay in his office at Oxford for four years. 
after which there would be what he called a kind of shared custody with visitation rights. In hindsight, Pattengale allowed, the whole arrangement was kind of far-fetched. But at the time, all he could think of was how much he wanted Hobby Lobby to own a gospel fragment from so close to Jesus' day. He emailed his superiors, pressing them to meet Obink's demands. They eventually did. When I met Jeff Fish on the Baylor campus last fall, he wore a look of anguish as he talked about a man he'd once venerated. What hurt most was a sense that Obink had tried to play him for a patsy, assuring him of Carol's bona fides and encouraging him to publish papyri the EES would later claim as stolen. I was used, Fish said. Baylor, which had brought Obink to campus a few times to give lectures and short seminars, had been on the cusp of offering him a full-time tenure-track job in 2018 when Fish intervened. It would be a terrible mistake, Fish warned the Classics chairman. Obink never got the offer. His payments to Lupfer, the renovator of his Texas castle, soon fell into arrears. In February 2019, he sold the property to Chip and Joanna Gaines, the Waco couple behind the HGTV series Fixer Upper. Factoring in the $200,000 he had spent on renovations, Obink lost roughly $100,000 on the sale, according to Lupfer. On March 26th, Steve Green announced that he was giving 5,000 of his papyri to Egypt. It was an admission that virtually every papyrus in his collection lacked sufficient evidence of not having been stolen, looted, or acquired by other improper means. For the same reasons, he said he was repatriating 6,500 clay relics to Iraq, on top of the 3,500 Iraqi antiquities Hobby Lobby had surrendered to settle a 2017 federal smuggling case. Green and his museum have sought to portray themselves as chastened by their early stumbles and determined to make amends, both by coming clean about their failures and by making institutional changes. I trusted the wrong people to guide me, Green said, and unwittingly dealt with unscrupulous dealers in those early years. Scholars have praised the latest reforms, but Green's efforts to deflect blame have rung hollow in some circles. In 2010, early in his collecting blitz, Green had attended a presentation that Hobby Lobby commissioned from Patty Gerstenblith, a DePaul University professor who is one of the world's foremost experts on cultural property law. I warned him, Gerstenblith told me, and he proceeded anyway. With hundreds of millions of dollars of spending power, Green had all the leverage to ask hard questions about provenance and to order investigations before handing his money over to dealers. But he never did. In the Obink case, Green and his representatives have cast themselves as the unsuspecting dupes of a mastermind. Green told me he'd failed to see the conflict in Obink's dual roles as advisor and seller because of his stellar reputation and standing in the scholarly community. He added, I would never intentionally buy anything forged or stolen. Green has returned the stolen Oxyrhynchus fragments to Oxford, and in 2018, he told me, Hobby Lobby asked Obink to refund the money it had paid him for the four first-century gospel fragments. Professor Obink provided assurances many times that he would pay us back and asked for time, which we patiently gave him, 
Green told me. He said Obink reimbursed $10,000 last summer, but stopped communicating after news of the alleged thefts broke last fall. Until Oxford, the EES, or the police reveal more, many questions will remain unanswered. But in the eyes of some devout critics, the last chapter of this saga will be written by a higher authority. Believers in the truth of the Bible cannot act like pirates, Peter Costello wrote last year in The Irish Catholic, Ireland's largest religious newspaper. If they wish to help establish the truth, they must do it through legal channels. God's truth deserves nothing less. If you enjoyed this production, find the best long-form articles read aloud in the Autumn app. Available now for iPhone and Android.